Turn with me tonight in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're going to commence reading at verse 63 to the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. For all online, the words will come up on screen. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Just before we read, let me point out that Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord, through Moses, as he gives his word, pronounces many blessings for obedience to laws from heaven and pronounces then curses for disobedience. And we're concluding the chapter as we read about those final things that the Lord will not do for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked from off the land whether thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known even wood and stone. And among these nations thou shalt find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and feeling of eyes, and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life in the morning. Thou shalt say, would God it were even. And at even, thou shalt say, would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear. And for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Now, my text tonight is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 66. And if you notice at the last part of the verse, it says, And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night and shall have none assurance of thy life. Now, my theme this evening I've entitled The Lack of Assurance of Life. Now, there are seven references in the Bible that mention the word assurance. Deuteronomy 28, 66 is the first one. The others are Isaiah 32, 17, Acts 17, 31, Colossians 2 and 2, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 5, which speaks of much assurance, Hebrews 6 and 11, and Hebrews 10 and 22. Now, seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. 
And every one of these references, they're really a sermon in their own right. But when you bring them together to form the whole picture, you discover some wonderful truths about this vital doctrine. It's interesting that two of these are found in the Old Testament scriptures. Two is the number of witness. There's five in the New Testament. Five's the number of grace. And you see, by the grace of God, revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be brought from a state and condition of having none assurance in thy life to full assurance of faith in thy life. And the last reference is Hebrews chapter 10, 22, that mentions full assurance of faith. Now, tonight I'm using the law of first mention. There is such a thing in biblical hermeneutics as the law of first mention. And the first mention of assurance is Deuteronomy 22, 66. And thou and shall have none assurance of thy life. Notice the text. It speaks of none assurance of thy life. Now, of course, it's talking about physical life. But I'm lifting it out of its context and I'm presenting it thinking primarily about spiritual life. Now, I believe tonight that the doctrine of assurance of salvation is a vital doctrine, an important subject in the Christian's life. So I want to look at this subject this evening, the lack of assurance of thy life. Four things. Think of the reality of the lack of assurance. Look at the text. None assurance of thy life. You should underline that. That means you have no assurance for your physical existence upon earth. And if it's true physically, it's true spiritually. I believe tonight that it's impossible to be born again and enjoy and experience new life in Christ, be savingly joined by faith uh, in oneness and union with Christ, and not know and enjoy much assurance of faith. You see, many in Ulster tonight, they assume that they're saved. They assume that they're born again. They assume that the Holy Ghost has created in them a new heart. And yet, they do not enjoy, experience, or know any kind of assurance. And when you examine their life, you discover that they have no deep love for Christ. They have no fear of the Lord. They have no God consciousness gripping their heart and mind. These individuals that assume this have never experienced a craving desire to repent of all known, secret, and open and presumptuous sin. They profess to know Christ as Lord and Master. But do they really? know him? You think of the multitude that think they're saved, that profess to be saved. But the reality is, while they profess, they do not literally and actually possess Christ. There's a man in Balamina, you don't know the man, but I knew of him back in faith mission days, Jasper McGowan. And Jasper used to say, well, there's a big difference between a profession of faith and the possession of Christ. And you see, a multitude tonight have got a kind of assurance that we could really say if we examined it is, is a false assurance. 
We'd have to say to those souls that assume that they're saved and born again, who or what are you relying on to get to heaven? We would say to them, don't rely on your Christian upbringing or your Christian parents. Don't even rely on the things that you say you believe and certainly don't rely on the church. Don't, don't, don't rely on the minister or the pastor. Don't rely on a superficial experience that you may have gone through, whether it's some religious rite like baptism or confirmation. Don't even rely on, on a life of prayer. Certainly don't rely on a life of almsgiving and gifts. You see, there's a multitude tonight in our province that assume they're saved. Think that way. But the reality is they're not savingly joined to Christ. Now, in the flip side, there's those who have genuinely trusted Christ as Lord and Redeemer. They are born again of the Holy Spirit, and yet they're plagued by doubt. They are the Lord's dear ones. Spurgeon said, I doubt the man who never doubts. Another said, I believe it was Thomas Watson, better to go to heaven doubting than to end up in hell as a poor deluded soul. Now I know we live in a day of easy believism, a day of cheap grace, a day when many professing Christians live out a kind of professed life, yet the life that they live, they live without any regard to the law of God or the Christ of God. As I've said, many have a form of assurance and may feel that because they've got a date, they can think back to a time and a place when they prayed a kind of prayer that they're saved and born again. Remember Thomas. Wasn't Thomas a doubter? I believe Thomas was saved over there in John chapter 20 and in the verse 25. For those online, the words will be on the screen. Listen to the word of God. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the prints of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Remember Peter, over there in Matthew chapter 14 and the verse 31, the Lord Jesus had this to say to Peter, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And like these two believers, Thomas and Peter, and we could name others, many struggle with a lack of assurance because they're plagued with doubt in their heart of men. And you know what the Bible exhorts us? Second Peter 1 and 10, make your calling and election sure. The Bible says to us, 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Prove yourselves. You see, I believe tonight that thousands and tens of thousands of professing Christians, and they're not absolutely sure that they're born again. They're not absolutely sure that all their sins are forgiven and under the blood. They're not absolutely sure if they're going to heaven. They're not absolutely sure if they died in that moment that God would let them into heaven. They're not actually sure that they're in Christ. Now let's be honest. Do you lack true biblical assurance tonight? Could Deuteronomy 28, 66 be written about you? None assurance of thy life. Do you have much assurance? Do you have full assurance of faith? You see, this is desirable. I want to tell you this is possible. 
I'll add to that, it's obtainable. And you can know that you're really saved. And you can enjoy a Christian life free from the nagging doubt of assurance. This is not presumptuous. Remember the Apostle Paul over there in 2 Timothy and in chapter 1 in verse 12 he says this, For the which things sake I also suffer these things. Nevertheless I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Over there in John, 1 John chapter 5 and in the verse 13 we read these words these things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the son of god that you may know that you have eternal life and you may believe on the name of the son of god we have just sang the hymn tonight blessed assurance it was written by fanny crosby do you know that she wrote over eight thousand hymns during her life she was born in the month of february in 1820 she lived to the ripe old age of 95 she, she died in 1915 Whenever she was six weeks old, she developed a, a cold and her eyes became inflamed. The regular doctor was away and family lived in New York and a visiting doctor was called upon. But I tell you, he wasn't a real doctor. He was a pretend doctor and he proposed a, a mustard poultice. Thankfully, the infection cleared up, but the poultice left a scarring of her eyes and she was taken to a man called Dr. Valentine Watt, famous in surgeon in New York he could do nothing and Fanny Crosby grew up known as the poor little blind girl now her father died and her mother Mary had to go and work as a maid so she was raised by her grandmother Eunice and Eunice looked after her physically Eunice undertook her education in fact, she became the little girl's eyes and she described the physical world to her in, in vivid detail. So, so Fanny could see it in her mind. And she looked after her spiritually. She read the Bible to her. She taught her the scriptures. She taught her how to pray. She pointed her to Christ. And as a young girl, Fanny Crosby trusted Christ as her Lord and Savior. Now, at the age of 14, one of Fanny's prayers was answered because the New York Institute for the Blind was opened and she entered the college. She became a star pupil. She, she graduated and then she eventually returned to teach in that um, institution. It was discovered that she had a talent for the formulating of poetry. What she did was she recited it to the secretary and then he wrote it down and then it was published. It was first of all, known as Fanny Crosby's Poems. Now that secondary was a man called Grover Cleveland and he became the president of the United States and after he was president uh, he invited the poet S. Fanny Crosby to the White House and at the age of 23 she addressed the Congress. She married in 1858. She married a man called Alexander von Alstein, one of New York's finest organists and he was the man responsible for putting the music to these 8,000 and more hymns. But let me tell you how Blessed Assurance was written. In 1873, Fanny was attending St. John Street Methodist Church in New York. It's downtown in Manhattan. And uh, there she befriended a lady called Phoebe Watt. Now, she was a very wealthy lady, married to a very wealthy man who started up an insurance business. But both loved music. 
Phoebe Watt loved poetry, and she loved having Fanny Crosby at her house. And, and one time they were in the music room, and she was playing some music, and she said to Fanny, Fanny, what does this music say to you? And she started to play. And as she played, Fanny Crosby started to quote the words, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of a spirit, washed in the blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And as she recited that, that hymn became famous then in New York and spread over the whole of the known world. The reality of the lack of assurance. I want you to think of something else, the reason for the lack of assurance. You see, at the heart of a lack of assurance is a failure, I believe, to understand the gospel. I believe many lack assurance because they themselves believe that they can do something to inherit or merit God's salvation. Many have this thought in their heart and mind that there's something I must do, something I can do to please God and be accepted by him. And the reality is, those that think like that, say that, feel that in their heart and mind, do not fully understand the true state and condition of their own heart, neither do they understand the doctrine of the gospel. You see, I believe tonight, like all other free Presbyterian ministers, in the doctrine of the total depravity of the sinner. I also believe in the total inability of the sinner to save oneself. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2 and 9. And here's the reason for the lack of assurance. There's a failure to understand that they're dead to God in trespasses and sin. See, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, remember what God said to Adam whenever Adam was in the Garden of Eden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The word surely die means in dying, thou shalt die. Now, Adam didn't die physically. He didn't fall down dead immediately. He ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At that moment, he wasn't eternally damned. But he died spiritually. Adam, first of all, died spiritually. He was cut off from a life of fellowship and communion with God. And from that moment, he became spiritually dead to God. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We sinned in Adam. And that's why Paul could say, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 and 1. And what can a dead man do? He can do nothing. He can't see. He can't speak. He can't think. He can't feel. So, so there's a failure to understand that you're dead to God in trespasses and sin. There's a failure to understand that you're defiled before God in trespasses and sin. Isaiah 64 and 6 talks about all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our sins. All our righteous acts. All the good things that we can think of that we do. And you see, we focus on those righteous acts and forget that we're all sinners by nature and sinners by practice. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there's none that doeth good, no, 
not one. Now what does that mean, none that doeth good? Does that mean that you're not capable of helping an old lady across the road? Does that mean you're not capable of putting your neighbor's bin in and out if it's in their driveway? Does that mean that you're not capable of um, picking up after your dog if you're out for a walk in the street or the park? Does that mean you're not capable of picking up the litter or not capable of caring for the planet or, or do something good to help your neighbor, a, a random act of kindness? It doesn't mean that. Those things are rooted in the common grace of God. When it says there's none that doeth good, it means no spiritual good. No, no, no moral good. It means that man is incapable of doing any moral or spiritual good in being savingly joined to the Lord. Romans 5 and 6 tells us, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're without strength. We have no power to do spiritual immorality. It's a failure to understand that we're darkened before God in trespasses and sins. How many can't see and feel sin in their life? You think of the reckless sinner tonight, the drug addict, the drunkard, the gambler, that immoral person. They have no strength to break free from themselves. They're good for nothing, reckless sinners. Think of the religious sinner. Here's another good-for-nothing sinner, but he's a religious sinner. And they assume that coming to church and reading the Bible, offering prayers and giving gifts and alms, and they tell themselves, but I'm a good person. And they are in their own eyes and maybe in the eyes of the others, but not before the Lord. If they're honest, they should admit that they're shaped in iniquity and they were conceived in sin. How many sins does it take to damn a soul? Just one sin. That one sin in Adam is enough to damn every soul in Adam. John 3 and 18 says this, He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What about the righteous sinner? He's blinded by pride. He's proud of himself, and yet he hasn't discovered his true self, that he's a sinner by nature. A sinner by practice. A failure to understand the sinner's weakness is one of the reasons why there's a lack of assurance. A failure to understand the Savior's work. Why did Jesus Christ come? See, the majority of people in the church, we were talking about this yesterday in outreach, people think, oh, Jesus was just a preacher. He was a teacher, a good example. He came to show people love. He came to show People, how a, a good martyr would die. He came to heal people of their sickness. No, that's not the reason why he came. Luke 19 and 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to see of that which was lost. 1 Timothy 1 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He came to save. He was sent by God the Father. He was sent on a mission of mercy. He was sent as God's only begotten son. And in the covenant of redemption, remember God the Father proposed to save a people that he gave to Christ. And the son came to redeem that people. And during 
time God the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and lives of these precious souls for whom Christ died and he operates on them and he gives them ears to hear and eyes to see. He gives them a new heart. He gives them a new love. He gives them a new bent toward God. See, let's not forget why he came. But let's not forget who came. Because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of God in his God was manifest in the flesh. And in John, we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Great is the mystery of God in his God was manifest in the flesh. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. We sang that first hymn tonight, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. It was written by William Cooper, or Cowper, whatever way you want to pronounce it. But do you know that William Cowper for a long time felt so dead before God in sin, felt so defiled, felt so dark and disgusting, he believed the Lord could save anybody but William Cooper. Do you know that he ended up in an asylum in England? I think it was St. Albans. A Christian doctor came to talk to him. And this is what he said. I do not believe God loves me. I do not believe that Christ died to save me. The Christian doctor had his Bible. He spent hours, couldn't get through. He left him to pray for him. But he left his Bible sitting. The Bible was opened at Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the verse I read to you. And after a while, William Cooper picked it up. And he began to read. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And it was that word propitiation that caught his mind. And all of a sudden, then he began to have light flooding into his soul. Here's a propitiatory sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. And God provides the sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Christ. And Christ came and shed his blood and appeased God's wrath. And at that very moment, sitting in a garden with the doctor's Bible, he came to the Lord. He gave his sin to Christ. And he exchanged it for God's salvation. And he had much assurance to the end of his days. He lived till he was 69. I remember hearing a story about a young girl that had no assurance. She had a date in her Bible when she had prayed a prayer. She had discussed this many times with many preachers. And she kept looking at the date. And then after a while she lapsed into sin. And then she felt she wasn't saved. And she came across this preacher after having talked to many preachers and they kept saying, put another date in your Bible. And she had quite a number of dates in the front of her Bible. But but this preacher wisely said to her, don't look at the date because it's not the date that saves. Look into the face of daddy. Look into the face of the divine son of God. Remember, it's Christ who does the saving work. He's the ground of our much assurance. They asked the question, is Jesus Christ good enough for you? I ask that to you tonight. 
Is Jesus Christ good enough for you? Do, is there a failure to understand the saving work of Christ? Is there a failure to understand the scripture word? You see, the word of God is real. It's alive. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're not saved by your feelings. You, one day you'll not feel saved. There's days I don't feel saved. But you're saved by faith in the Son of God through grace. Faith, remember, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. And if you think of a train, think of three engines that's, that's carrying the carriages of life. And you've got the fact. And you've got faith. And you've got feelings. And if you believe what God says that God will do, then you adopt the mindset, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. So you come to Christ, you confess Christ, you cling to Christ. That's what believeth means. Remember in Romans chapter 10, we read in verse 9 and 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. John 6 and 37. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. But there's also a failure to understand the Spirit's witness. Not only the sinner's weakness and the Savior's work and the Scripture word, but a failure to understand the Spirit's weakness. You see, the Spirit of God witnesses to your spirit that you're born of God. You're led and guided by the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings home to your heart the great facts of the person and work of Christ. And faith lays hold of those facts and follows hard in the fields of facts. And then the feeling, come joy in the Holy Ghost. Peace with God, peace in believing. The peace of God. And those that are born of God won't live in habitual sin. Those that are born of God will love the brethren. Those that are born of God will believe in right living. Those that are born of God will love Jesus Christ. Because they're born of God. Because they're indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit will witness. Those are the reasons for the lack of assurance. Let me just leave with you the results of the lack of assurance. Non-assurance of thy life. What have you got? A life of misery and despair. You, you think of William Cowper in that asylum. Do you know that many times he tried to take his own life? He had no joy in the Holy Ghost. He had no peace in believing. He, he lived a life full of doubt and fear. A life when he felt dead and dirty and defiled before God. A life of forgetfulness of who God is and what he's done. A life of fretting and worry. It was seen in his face. It was seen in his actions. And the result of a lack of assurance is real. And how many of God's people are living in defeat and despair and misery tonight? And, and here's the finger. It's a lack of assurance as part of the problem, if not the real problem. And what's the remedy for a lack of assurance as we finish tonight? Well, it's very simple. No one enjoy Christ. Discover the reality of being found in him. We're going to sing in closing now. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, he fulfilled the law of God. Do you know that he honored his parents? How many times have we disobeyed and failed to honor our parents? Do you, do you know that he was full of grace and truth? Never man spake like this man. 
And yet you think of the things that we have said and thought and done. You remember he was the sinless, spotless son of God. He did no sin in him, was no sin, and he knew no sin. And yet none of us could say that because we are sinners by nature and practice. Think of the times you've took the Lord's name in vain. Think of the times you've, you've disobeyed and broken God's law. And yet the Lord Jesus came, not only fulfilled the law, but became a perfect sacrifice and substitute for sinners, bled and died for all who would trust him. Hebrews 10 and 12 says, but this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And over there in Peter, in 1 Peter, and in chapter 3 and verse 18, and with this we'll finish. Remember what the, the word of God says. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. See, here's the one who propitiated God's wrath. And because he appeased God's wrath, he was able to expiate and put away our guilt. None but Christ can satisfy the hymn writer said, He suffered for sins. His sufferings were in proportion to our sins. His suffering and anguish was for sinners who would trust him. His sacrifice and sufferings were once and for all. It was a singular sacrifice. He rendered a full, perfect satisfaction to God's justice. The work of Christ is perfect. It's final. It's complete. This is the remedy for a lack of assurance. Come to know Christ and enjoy the life that you have in Christ and experience full assurance of faith. May the Lord bless this thought to your heart this evening.